The Triathlon Show 357. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm Rose Michael and on today's episode I interview Professor Ben Desbro. Professor Desbro works at the Griffith University in Queensland, Australia, uh, where he has academic interests in primarily nutrition and dietetics in athletic and uh, clinical settings. He also has a foot in the applied side of sports nutrition, uh, being an accredited practicing dietitian working uh, in a number of sports, including a rugby league. In the interview today, we discuss all things alcohol in endurance sports and sports in general. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Fuel and Hydration that creates sports nutrition products, including both fueling and hydration products. And they help you use these products effectively through a range of free tools, services, and content. They have recently launched a fantastic fuel and hydration planner on their website that is a one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you. It's free and super easy to use. It only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions and then you get a detailed, simple and effective race plan. They also offer free video consultation and as a listener of the podcast, you can get 15% off your order of their range of products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a one-of-a-kind swim bench that helps you improve your technique through an early catch, maximize propulsion through a more powerful stroke, and stay consistent by doing swim workouts at home even when you can't go to the pool. It is available in the UK, EU, and the US with free shipping in both the UK and the US. It is very affordable similar to a pair of running shoes and best of all the investment is risk-free if you're not in love with the zenate trainer after two weeks using it and using their free program you can send it back and get a full refund learn more and get a 20 percent discount on your swim trainer on zenatewintrainer.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with professor ben despro welcome to that triathlon show ben how are you doing i'm very well michael how are you going yeah, uh, going really good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, glad that we could uh, could arrange this podcast. It's actually a topic that I've been trying to get an expert on for quite some time, and uh, I'm very happy to have gotten you on. So, but before we get into uh, the topic of alcohol in endurance sports, can you give the audience an, an introduction to yourself and tell us a bit about uh, who you are and what you're doing? Sure. Um, well, I'm I'm based in Australia. Um, my background is I started. Um, in an exercise science um, degree program and then realised at the time that I had an interest in fueling exercise as much as um, doing exercise. Um, so I ended up doing uh, a dietetics qualification, became a dietitian. Um, but I've always been interested in sport and exercise nutrition. I had a fellowship at the Australian Institute of Sport down in Canberra. I live on the Gold Coast, which I'm not sure how uh, much your listeners know about geography, but, but where I live is north of Canberra. Um, and so I was down in Canberra at the Institute of Sport, which is very, very well known for sports nutrition practice and research, um, and really developed an interest in sports nutrition research while I was down there. And then I, when I came um, back up to where I'm from, um, which is Brisbane, um, I ended up completing a PhD in sport and exercise nutrition um, up here. My my PhD was in the effect of cola beverages on endurance exercise. So we were very into um, cycling, cycling performance, triathlon uh, performance. Um, 
and then uh, really from there embarked on a sort of research um, career investigating a whole range of things um, that influence human performance, not just sports performance, but we looked at driving performance, we've looked at cognitive function, we've looked at a whole range of different things, um, but always looking for food and, and nutrient um, interventions that may moderate um, exercise performance. I do some clinical nutrition research as well, and I found that those two areas sort of emer- have merged a bit because when we're talking about nutritional interventions for things like lean body mass, um, we have a sporting interest in that end of the spectrum, but we also have a health um, end of that spectrum as well. Um, and some of our work has involved sort of nutrition on the dark side, if you like, So, um, which is what I'm going to talk about today, which is um, some work that we've done in, in alcohol. Um, and so I'm a professor at Griffith University now. Um, I have about... Um, seven or eight PhD students who work underneath me, which is great because it means you can answer lots of really interesting questions really quickly. And it also means that you don't have the pressure of trying to complete your own degree because you've already got them, which is uh, means that uh, I'm in an enjoyable situation at the moment from the point of view of um, lots of lots of questions, lots of people helping me answer them, but um, not as much pressure as you might have when you're trying to get your degree. Yeah, and uh, one follow up on that as well. Uh, have uh, have you always been kind of, or for a long time, been in the academic setting quite heavily, or do you also do some practical work with with athletes or with just general population? Um, yeah, so uh, when I uh, returned from Canberra, so my first real sort of experience of organised sport was when I was in Canberra, and I came back and I did some work. Uh, I worked for the British Olympic. Association before Sydney 2000. This starting to show how old I am now. Then I've worked in cricket. I've worked for Cricket Australia. I've worked for rugby. Uh, and at the moment, I work for a professional rugby league team here on the Gold Coast um, as their sort of head of performance nutrition. So rugby league, if you're not familiar with that sport, is a collision sport. It's sort of similar to rugby union. Um, the rules are just slightly modified, but very similar in terms of uh, large bodies directly running into one another. So not 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 endurance sport per se, but still a sport that requires some um, strong consideration of nutrition. Um, and I still see some athletes sort of privately on an individual level um, and was always interested in endurance sport myself. Um, I, I used to do um, triathlons um, sort of previously. I've done one Ironman, um, not, not particularly fast by world standards, but it certainly taught me a lot about the experience of um, eating and, and drinking during exercise and having to manage yourself. So um, all of these things have been great to, you know, have a, a much greater understanding of the application of nutrition, not just about the fundamentals of, um, you know, what you might see in textbooks. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Uh, so let's uh, get into the topic of alcohol and uh, start with, uh, I guess, some might consider it a dumb question, but what is alcohol? Uh, well, alcohol um, that we consume is usually in the form of ethanol. Um, um, so whether you're drinking beer or wine or spirits, um, it's in the form of ethanol. Um, obviously, the concentration is different um, depending on what you're drinking, and it's caused by the, it's developed by the fermentation of sugars um, during. So it starts off um, usually as a form of carbohydrate, which then gets moderated by enzymes during fermentation and, and produces ethanol. Um, and that's, you know, what we refer to as alcohol. There's other alcohols, sugar alcohols that are made, but when we talk about alcohol by way of 
um, drinking beverages, um, alcoholic beverages. We're talking about ethanol. Mm. And uh, how is alcohol processed in the body? And, uh, and I guess also, um, why does alcohol have the effects it has on, on the body that we are probably most of us are aware of anyway? Yeah, well, we, we, we have three different ways of um, metabolizing ethanol when it comes in. Um, by far the largest and um, most common way is via alcohol dehydrogenase, the enzyme. Um, which we call ADH, which is sometimes a little bit confusing when you read textbooks because that also is the um, the term that we use for antidiuretic hormone. But alcohol dehydrogenase, ADH, as we might call it, there's some um, in the stomach, so you get some metabolism of alcohol in the stomach. Most of it's in the small intestine is where you, you get the uh, – um, sorry, not in the small intestine, you get absorption from um, – the small intestine, you get absorption from the stomach as well, but the other main sources in the liver. Um, yeah. So, so most most of the alcohol is metabolized via ADH. Um, there's a um, two other pathways, uh, what we call a, a, a microsomal ethanol oxidizing system, or the MIOS pathway. Um, it tends to um, increase when you've got very large acute doses of alcohol. And, and the alcohol dehydrogenase sort of pathways become saturated. It's also a little bit more malleable in that you can um, train it a little bit. Um, so if you drink regularly, you tend to see an upregulation of the MIOS pathway. And then a much smaller path pathway is the catalase pathway, which is another um, liver-based enzyme. So the MIOS and, and catalase enzymes, they're, they're all liver-based. Mm. Uh, and uh, the... The ADH uh, pathway, can you see an upregulation in that, or is that fairly is that determined by things like body size, genetics, and so on? Yeah, so some of those things you do you do see some um, you do see some upregulation as you you see with with most enzyme systems, but yeah, there's other um, factors such as primarily genetics, um, body size, as you mentioned, um, but you know uh, that that have the sort of primary sort of driving effect of that. Now all of these things break that out that ethanol down to um, acid aldehyde, and that's when you said before what it, what is the you know what what is the um, why does alcohol cause you so many problems? It's usually through um, the accumulation of this acid aldehyde, um, so it, it's often associated with the hangover type effects. Um, so it's the the buildup of um, the breakdown products of alcohol that usually start to cause. Um, some sort of the clinical problems associated with alcohol. Mm. And is that true also for not just the hangover effects, but let's say reductions in various functions, uh, cognitive and uh, motor function and all sorts of things that you have during a night out, let's say? Yeah, yeah. So the alcohol itself can have a direct effect, but the acetaldehyde can as well. Um, and it needs to be broken down to acetate um, and then ultimately you know, um, you know, that, that can um, itself um, have some, um, you know, delays in, you know, um, excretion as well. But the acetaldehyde can um, cause, a, you know, inflammatory effects, effects on cognitive function as well as the ethanol itself. Mm. And uh, how, what is the time course of metabolizing al alcohol and, and kind of get it out of the system? Yeah, uh, well, it's a, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, the typical values are usually about sort of six grams of ethanol per hour. 
Um, but in larger people who are regular drinkers, um, that might go up to, you know, above 10 grams an hour. So we, we normally talk about alcohol in terms of standard drinks and internationally that's about 10 grams of alcohol. Um, so a fast metabolizer will, will metabolize sort of one standard drink an hour. Um, mm. A slower metabolizer, it may take them, you know, twice that long. Yeah. Yeah. And are there any sex differences, a difference between males and females in uh, the processing of alcohol in general? Uh, the, probably the major thing is, is just um, size of liver and capacity of the liver enzymes. Um, and large people typically have large livers, but the, la the greater variance really comes in the genetics of the individual. Um, and you see some genetic variances that can see some fast metabolizers and slow metabolizers. And we also see differences in terms of how people respond to the buildup of acetaldehyde. So there are some people who, for instance, don't seem to get um, substantial hangovers. So they may have some of the um, cognitive impacts of, of, of ethanol, but they don't have the, the longer-term sort of more troubling, you know, side effects that um, might um, see those people potentially become more regular drinkers because they don't tend to have the uh, harmful side effects and there's some genetics yeah. behind that. Yeah, but he did say body size would generally have a have a have an impact on how yeah, you metabolize yeah, gen alcohol. Generally, larger people can metabolize alcohol at a faster rate than 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 smaller people, largely purely on the basis of the capacity of their liver and um, the activity of the liver enzymes. When you give people a fixed dose of alcohol, like one standard drink, a smaller person is typically going to metabolize that alcohol at a at a slower rate, largely on the basis of the, the amount of enzyme activity that they have. Got it, um, yeah. Pure, pure, pure on the size of the organ. Yep. So if you, gave them a, if, if you gave them a relative dose, so you titrated it up based on kilo body weight, then you probably see sort of similar metabolic rates, but that's not typically how we drink. No, most people no, drink exactly. in an absolute amount. Yeah. Uh, perspective. So, so, so if we uh, move on to discuss alcohol in the context of endurance sports, so you mentioned that you've done some studies and uh, and I'm sure you're also very familiar with uh, the the state of the evidence in general. So can you give an overview of, uh, yeah, maybe firstly what, what you have done, but also what we know about alcohol in the context of endurance sports in general from the scientific literature? Yeah, sure. Um, well, um, the work that we've done has been largely around hydration or post-exercise hydration. Um, that was sort of our or my initial interest in alcohol because we were in hydration research um, through some other work that we were doing. And the first thing you always do when you do a hydration study in a lab is control the volume of fluid that you give somebody and then you might increase the amount of sodium that you give them or you might increase the amount of carbohydrate that you give them and see what the impact is of your nutrient manipulation, but um, the volume that someone consumes is so critical to how much fluid might be retained. You'd always cap that or, you know, you, you, you'd, you'd moderate that. And when you um, observe people's behaviour, um, you know, in that sort of post-exercise environment, um, it, you know, it's pretty obvious that people like drinking large volumes of, of alcohol, in particular beer. So for me it was always a fascinating sort of, compound to look at from a rehydration perspective because it had this wonderful property of people being able to drink a lot of it. Um, clearly, it had alcohol in it, which wasn't necessarily the greatest from a, 
a rehydration perspective, but it had other properties of that would make it a really interesting post-exercise beverage in the fact that people like to drink it. They didn't seem to get sick of drinking it, so they didn't seem to get sick of the taste, and it was it was highly socially accepted. And so there was lots of opportunity for people to drink. And so we started to look at beer in particular because of that those some of those properties to see whether we could manipulate um, beer's properties to you know make it a better rehydration solution than you know, rather than switching people to beer. We were really looking at well, if you're going to drink beer, is there a better is there a better beer that we can make? And so. That's where our area of interest sort of started and sort of has, has grown from there. What I would say about alcohol in general in that sort of um, in the exercise science literature is it's it's really immature um, in terms of um, in comparison to the number of people who drink in and around training and the amount of evidence that we have that underpins our knowledge in that space, there's a big gap there. Like we know a lot more about berries and cherries and their impact on recovery than we do about um, alcohol, uh, which is you know partly because these things might be good for us, you know, berries and cherries type um, research, and we're always looking for things to you know uh, that we can potentially leverage performance gains from. But the reality is that most people uh, uh, have some incorporation of alcohol in their lifestyle in some capacity. It might be a very small amount. For others, it might be a more regular um, intake. And for me, it was it's always important to do research to try and help understand the way people sort of currently live to provide them some guidance on what might or might not be useful. And so when you look at their alcohol research, and really I, I break the alcohol in sport research down around the, the R's of recovery, so refueling, repairing, relaxing, rehydrating. Um, what does alcohol do in the, it, to each of those things is really interesting when you look at the literature because some of it's there's some there's some fairly uh, thin amounts of literature in some of those spaces. Can can you give a brief overview of each of those R's and what the evidence uh, that does exist say, or if if it doesn't exist, then then let us know that as well. Yeah. Well, I think before you start on any of the R's, you need to understand the way um, scientists prescribe alcohol because, it's, as I said, it's, it's not the way yep. you and I would drink. Um, when you read alcohol literature, it usually describes a, a grams per kilo body weight amount of alcohol, so it's a relative dose. And in the scientific literature, um, they consider a, a moderate alcohol dose, not a, not a high dose but a moderate dose, um, about one gram per kilo body weight. So if you're 70 kilos, that, that, that equates to 70 grams of alcohol or seven standard drinks. Now, that's, that's what scientists consider a moderate dose. Now, um, if I was to have seven standard drinks, being not much of a drinker, that, that, would, that would be a, a very, very, very big night for me. Yeah, and you so, and me both. <laughs> <laughs> and for a lot of triathletes, that would be far more than they would usually consume because they know that they've got to get up early in the morning and do some training or, you know, that they want to feel good the next day. Um, and so they would, they would never drink to that extent. And so when you look at these R's, as I said, the repair, recovery, relax, 
rehydrate. Um, you need to look at it from the context of the doses that have been given and then apply that back to what an endurance athlete might be actually consuming. So if you look at refueling, so what is the evidence around alcohol's impact on muscle glycogen resynthesis, which is our main source of refueling that we want to do? How many studies do you think exist in the scientific literature in that space? Maybe a handful or less than that, so five or less. Well, I would say it, it is less than a handful. There is actually only one study that I'm aware of that's ever been done where they gave alcohol and measured muscle glycogen resynthesis rates. It happened to be done in Canberra, where I used to work. And how much alcohol do you think the participants were given in the study? Well, I'm just going to guess that uh, one gram per kilo body weight uh, that you just mentioned, but it might might have been more actually, maybe two, maybe one and a half or two. Uh, well, it was it, it it was actually one and a half. Hmm. So it was one and a half grams per kilo body weight of of um, alcohol. So a very large dose, um, and they it was an interesting study because they looked at um, replacing. Um, the the energy on one arm of the study, so they gave alcohol, and obviously on a trial where they where they don't give alcohol, um, you've got a much lower energy intake. There's a lot of calories that come from the alcohol itself. So on one one arm of the study, they um, they they got the carb the carbohydrate displaced by the alcohol, and another time they gave the alcohol plus the carbohydrate um, back. And what they basically found was that. In comparison to a control trial, when the carbohydrate was matched plus alcohol, then there wasn't a huge difference in the muscle glycogen resynthesis rate. But when the when the when the alcohol displaced the carbohydrate, so in other words, they tried to keep the energy the same, and so the person, in other words, drank but didn't eat so much, they found that there was less muscle glycogen resynthesis. So to unpack that a little bit, what that means is if you were to go out and consume the same amount of carbohydrate that you would have, regardless of whether you drunk alcohol or not, then having some alcohol probably in that in this one study didn't influence the muscle glycogen resynthesis. However, if you started to drink and then, then that led to poor dietary choices which reduced your carbohydrate intake, and maybe you thought, well, I'm drinking, I don't want to eat anything because I don't want to put on weight, and therefore you didn't bring the carbohydrate in because most alcoholic beverages don't contain a lot of carbohydrate unless they're mixed with sweeteners, then in that case, the muscle glycogen resynthesis rate was much lower. And I suspect that's why no more studies have ever been done in that area is because it was a large, large dose of alcohol and it didn't show a direct effect of the alcohol and muscle glycogen resynthesis. And so if a large dose like that didn't affect, and it was a well-controlled study done by a well-known lab, I suspect then other people haven't pursued it. But mm. it's only one study. Just, just, just to clarify, so, they, so when, you have, when the alcohol displaced some of the carbohydrate, uh, the groups were, it was energy matched to the control group, but it wasn't carbohydrate matched to the control group. Is Correct. that right? Correct. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. And so you ended up with a, 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 
uh, a lower muscle um, glycogen storage, but which could be largely explained by the carbohydrate displacement rather than a, an effect yeah. of the alcohol. Yeah, yeah, got it. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. What about the other R's? Okay, so if we go to repair, so muscle repair, um, there, there have been um, some studies done at the one gram per kilo um, level. There's, there's, only, there's only one study that's been... So when we look at um, muscle, uh, like muscle synthesis, like muscle fiber synthesis, um, and look at the really good studies that use sort of tracer values to directly measure muscle protein synthetic response. There's only one in the literature, but there's other studies that have used functional measures like counter-movement jumps or um, force production to have a look to see whether whether the muscle is, from from a damaging exercise, has recovered faster. Does that make sense? Yep. So yep. The, the one study that's been done that's looked at a direct measure of uh, muscle protein synthesis used used a much larger dose. It used the, the 1.5 um, dose again. So in that case, it was, uh, you know, a sort of dose of alcohol that you could probably um, expect, um, you know, is not going to um, be good for your health before, you, you know, a teenager could tell you that when you drink, you know, 10 or 12 standard drinks on one occasion, that's not going to be great for your body. And if your body's damaged, um, it's not allowing that that recovery to occur at the rate that we'd like it to. So that there was a, that study was a study by Evelyn Parr done in 2014 when they gave that 1.5 grams per kilo body weight of alcohol and found out that it did dampen the protein synthetic response to a resistance training activity. So we we've got we've actually got. Um, I think I don't think that we've got anything in the um, endurance space looking at mitochondrial resynthesis, um, you know, rates, you know, biogenesis mm. of mitochondria, which is usually the thing we're looking for from an endurance adaptation perspective. It's all on, it's all done on um, strength and response to uh, muscle damaging exercise like um, eccentric loading of you know walking downhill or um, you know, causing um, muscle damage and then seeing what happens the next day. There was a series of studies done by a guy called Matt Barnes. He's a New Zealander, um, and they were done about 10 years ago now. And Matt was fantastic because he he lowered the doses a little bit. He got down, um, one of his studies is only 0.5 of a gram per kilo body weight, which is, that's more my kind of drinking. You know, yep. you know, th three standard drinks for me is a huge night still. Um, you know, three, three and a half sort of standard drinks. Um, and um, when he's down at, at that sort of level, um, he's seen fewer and fewer effects on things like exercise-induced muscle damage a day or, you know, a day and a half after um, a, 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 an exercise task which has caused muscle damage. So, for instance, if you've done a lot of running um, and you have a dose of alcohol that's less than 0.5 grams per kilo body weight. So give me a, a weight of one of your listeners, maybe a female triathlete. Uh, let, yeah, let's go with 60, 60 kilograms. 
Yeah, so in this case, we're talking about, you know, less than 30 grams of alcohol, less than three standard drinks. Um, we, we have no scientific evidence to show that that causes substantial delays in functional recovery of, of an individual if it's a one-off drinking occasion for those individuals. Mm-hmm. The lowest um, values that we have um, uh, are really in that sort of 0.5 grams. There's been nothing. There's been nothing less than that. Yeah. So if you're having one standard drink or two standard drinks from a muscle recovery perspective, we have no studies in the area, and the studies that have used slightly higher doses than that have shown really marginal to to no impact at all. Once you get over 0.5, then you start seeing effects that we can detect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, just but a reminder, so the listeners are, are, are follow, fo- following along, is that uh, 10 grams would be one standard drink, so, so you can correct. do the math from there. Yeah, correct. And so what we have to canvas this in saying still this is all one-off um, exercise bouts with an, with an acute alcohol dose, and again, the dose is relative based on the person's body weight. Yeah. Now, from a, um, a relaxation perspective, um, the best data that we have on alcohol and sleep, um, and probably the best data that we have is, is from a study um, published a couple of years ago that tracked people's sleep. Um, it tracked about 60, uh, maybe it was, uh, I'm just trying to, no, it was, it, was about a, it was about 150 people. I think they tracked them for two months and got them to rate um, their sleep for more than six, a minimum of 60 days and also their alcohol intake and they were able to look at the quality of the sleep as well as the duration of the sleep showed that the alcohol didn't affect duration of sleep or wasn't closely correlated with duration of sleep, but it did affect negatively sleep quality. So it, it may impact uh, on someone's ab- ab- ability to sleep well, but it's a relatively small effect. What we don't have is... Um, a great deal of um, free living data on people's uh, like rapid eye movement, sleep, deep sleep cycles, different what we'd call sleep architecture. We have some broad measures of how long did you sleep for? Tell me, was it a good quality sleep on a rating scale type stuff? But nothing mm-hmm. sort of drilled down too much on a large scale population around the sleep architecture. And, and was that a, a linear correlation with uh, the the dosage or the amount of alcohol the participants had? Like, did, did they see that the more alcohol they consumed, the more the sleep quality was impaired? Uh, yeah, it's but it's a very gradual linear. Um, and the highest dose yeah. that they had, I've got the paper, I just found the paper as I was talking to you, um, was they categorized it as, uh, you know, one up to five drinks. And then once they got to five, they just had five plus. They didn't categorize the drinks mm-hmm. beyond that. And sometimes that's when things start to move away from the linear type. Uh, so they've got an equal number of, you know, one to two, two to three, three to four, four to five. But then once they've got to five, they haven't got any larger data, which they've then interpreted via, via a line of best fit. Um, yeah. But that's that's on the quality, it's the quality index. Yeah, not so much on the on the duration, and as yeah. I said, um, the last um, R, which is the rehydration, is the one where we that's where we've done our research. And as as I said, we were looking for could we turn uh, people who want to drink beer, um, you know, onto a a beer that was better for them. And the, and the answer to that is yes, you can, 
um, the alcohol content is is critical. Um, alcohol is a diuretic, but um, usually at a dose um, that it once it once it goes sort of above sort of probably three and a half percent alcohol by volume, um, you'll usually often end up in a dose that is it, you know causes um, a diuretic effect, and so um, the you can then because um, beer itself, if we if we look at that product, but you know wine's the same. Um, you know, being plant based, they contain a whole range of other compounds which you can play around with that can potentially manipulate things like inflammation, things like you know fluid retention, and and so on. So there's actually um, you know more than ten investigations on alcohol in that sort of rehydration space, um, and they've looked at um, you know, ranges of alcohols. Um, our work has looked at also manipulating the sodium content of alcohol, uh, of beer, to see whether you get, can get a, an effect of reducing alcohol, but also the electrolytes um, potentially mediating a, a greater water holding effect. Um, and the answer to that is yes, you do. So um, you get the best fluid retention from a, a, a alcohol um, beverage that's got, you know, um, less than three and a half percent alcohol by volume, and as much sodium as you can tolerate. And you know you can't tolerate that much sodium in fluids; it, it tends to dominate the taste of things pretty quickly. But we've done some some other work, which is that sits outside the alcohol work, which has looked at the influence of food and fluids. Um, because I've been very um, concerned with some of the methods that we use in our lab to determine whether one beverage is a good beverage in comparison to something else. And because we have to control everything, it actually becomes so unlike real life that that's not the way humans actually behave out, you know, in a, in a, in a free living environment. And so we've started to do other studies where we've looked at the interaction between fluid and food, which is far more common that someone's going to have something to drink after exercise, but they may well eat as well within a, a short period of time. And to what extent does the food and the fluid interact to influence um, hydration? And what we've what we've shown from that is, as soon as you start eating, because food is often very nutrient dense in comparison to fluids, um, you get great water holding um, capacity from the nutrients that are in the food, and even even water becomes a really great rehydration solution when there's food available. And so the same is the case with with an alcoholic beverage, just so long as the alcohol content is probably less than that three and a half percent. Yeah, the no, challenge comes if you bring in calories in. That's the that's the that's the issue. Yeah, how how many calories are there in a let's say three three and a half percent or less beer standard beer? Yeah, so um, the calorie content of alcohol is well, I use kilojoules. That's so twenty it's about twenty nine kilojoules per gram. Okay, so to convert that to, yeah. to calories, you divide it by four. It's just over seven calories per right. gram. Yeah. So uh, a standard uh, beverage, ten grams of alcohol, you're going to get about seventy calories from that. Yeah. Uh, and then if the beverage has got any other trace amounts of carbohydrate from the other um, undigested or unfermented carbohydrates that are there, um, it might add a little bit. But then the main source of energy outside of that is what it's mixed with. So if it's mixed with a, a cola or a soda beverage that contains uh, sugar, 
um, then you get a lot of calories from that as well. But a standard drink, which if you look at a mid-strength beer, is usually about one standard drink per 375 mils. It's going to be about um, 70 calories um, from, from, from that beverage. Uh, and then obviously if you've got a higher concentration, so once you go up to you know, 5% beverage, then you know, 375, you, you've got r- roughly about 1.5 standard drinks. So you've got about 15 grams of alcohol. And so it goes up to, you know, around 100 to 120 odd calories in a, in a mm. standard um, full strength beer, as we might describe a full strength beer. But it, it, it all comes back to the concentration of the alcohol. And um, I don't know what it's like um, in your part of the world, but ginger beers, alcoholic ginger beers have become very, very popular down here. And I had one last night that was at 7%. And I didn't realize it until I was halfway through because they're normally about 3 or 4%. And I was like, my goodness, this has gone straight to my head. What's going on? And then I looked at the label, which is, of course, the, the, wrong, way of, the wrong way of doing things. You look at the label first. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, that's super interesting with the, with the hydration, though, and, and, and especially that work with combining it with food, which, as you say, is more, uh, I guess, ecologically valid and, and how people behave in, uh, in the real world. Um, so I think if we wrap up the, the scientific evidence part of this, we can then say that most of the work has really been done in at, and, and most of the findings have also been at doses that are considerably higher than, than what would be relevant for most endurance athletes. Because as you said, very few endurance athletes would, would have those amounts of, of alcohol when, when they are in, in training mode anyway. So, so then it comes down to more about the, the practical and applied side of things, uh, which we alluded to that you also have been doing work on, on that side. So, so let's discuss a few practical scenarios and, uh, and you will be the practitioner here. So what would you say if somebody uh, likes to have a, a beer or a glass of wine in, in the evening quite frequently, uh, would you say that, that can it, does it have any impact on, on the training of that person? Uh, well, how would you, and, and is there, if, if it would, do you have any advice on how to mitigate those potential negative consequences? Yeah, so I, I, all of the stuff that we've spoken about is there are acute studies where we give a, a single dose of alcohol and then we, we have a look at the parameter of interest in the next day or two days afterwards. Um, as we've just discussed, alcohol contains energy and it's, it's pretty energy dense. And from an a, a athletic perspective, uh, particularly a sport like triathlon, you know, um, body composition is reasonably um, correlated with performance to a point. Um, and so if you're regularly consuming alcohol, then it's going to contribute to your total calorie intake and whether you're, um, if you're in a situation where you're trying to change your body composition um, to become lighter, for instance, if that's what you want to do, then the regular consumption of alcohol is not going to help that. Having said that, I'm a big fan of food for enjoyment. Um, I know of uh, one of my closest friends is one of Australia's leading um, dietitians, and I know before he competes in a triathlon, uh, the night before, he normally drinks a Guinness. And it, it, it's as much about the celebration of the achievement of getting to the start line and recognising that a small amount of alcohol probably doesn't do any harm whatsoever. But food is more than the nutrients that it's delivering to you. Food is has an important social um, element. It has an, in, an enjoyment element and it has, and it has that connectedness element. And I think the moment we forget about that 
and we remove that, then we've lost one of the key joys of being on the planet. Um, and, and I'm very much focused on having evidence-based nutrition. And as I've just alluded to, we've got, um, you know, pretty weak evidence, uh, largely because it's almost likely that you're never going to see an effect from having one standard drink in an evening on next day's exercise performance. The, the question is, is it one standard drink or is it four standard drinks? And is it on an occasion or is it most nights of the week? And mm. so I guess it comes back to the pattern of drinking and where the, where the person is at in terms of their capability of you know, controlling their alcohol intake. But small amounts of alcohol, you know, one standard drink, um, you know, a couple of times a week, you're not going to find a study where that shows a, a direct effect on performance outcomes because the signal is too weak to, to, to cause that effect. And if it means that you're, uh, you relax, one of the great things that I have seen in um, doing lots of work on alcohol was a, a student education tool that was given out to first-year university students in a college in America, and it described breath alcohol concentrations and at the bottom it had the pleasure zone and then you entered what they called the zone of regret and then you entered uh, a zone that we don't want to even speak of, of beyond that and I like to see people stay within the pleasure zone and it's okay to be in the pleasure zone and we shouldn't necessarily feel guilty about it because we do live increasingly stressful lives and if it's the one opportunity that allows us to sit and talk to de-stress, to unwind, to connect, then small amounts of alcohol can serve a very useful purpose in that sense. And we shouldn't be too concerned that it's going to cause severe compromise to the next day's performance, provided it's in moderation. Yeah. No, that all makes, uh, makes complete sense. And uh, one follow-up on that, I guess, is if somebody is a very infrequent drinker and, and I realize that you're not going to be able to have any evidence, like scientific evidence on this, but, uh, but maybe anecdotal data and somebody's very infrequent drinker and then they have uh, maybe one or maybe two standard drinks in, in the evening uh, and they haven't done that in months and, and they, they generally don't drink at all. Do you think they will, uh, will they see an effect on their next day's training, for example, or on their recovery uh, just because they're not habituated at all to alcohol consumption? One drink, probably not. But if you're an unhabituated drinker, as soon as you get between two and three drinks, you do run the risk of getting slight effects the next day by way of just feeling um, slight what I'd call malaise, you know, just slightly um, having some subtle hangover effects. Um, it's difficult to detect physiologically what the impact of that would be. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, some people um, move into this space because they may be very prone to hangover symptoms. And so they stop drinking because they get these symptoms regularly. And then it becomes a chicken or the egg thing. They start to, you know, de-regulate um, or not de-regulate, but, um, uh, you know, um, dehabituate the enzymes. They were already prone to getting hangovers beforehand. And now they have, you know, three drinks on one occasion and then that sort of propagates what they were already probably susceptible to beforehand. So I think this is one of the, the challenges that we have is that we have to know our own bodies. Um, but I would think for most people I can handle one drink, one standard drink. 
Yeah. It's when it becomes, when it moves to two or three is when you'll start to see those people who are very alcohol sensitive start to see some effects that they can report. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess there are also things that you can, you can consider to, uh, as we talked about a bit, mitigate those effects with maybe things like, you know, not, not drinking on an empty stomach is very typical advice, uh, having some food and, and also maybe the time of consumption, like why not make it a bit earlier in the evening rather than later uh, if, if you have the, the possibility to choose. Sure. And what, what we normally um, see is that most people's – so when you, when you consume alcohol, we have what we call a, an ascending limb and a descending limb of the blood alcohol response curve. So obviously the ascending limb, when you first have alcohol, comes into the system and your blood alcohol level is going up and then it reaches the peak and then over time as you start to clear that um, alcohol, metabolize it, it slowly comes down. Uh, Symptom-wise, so symptomology of feeling lightheaded, euphoric, um, you get more of those symptoms in the ascending limb. And so if you are aware of that and you don't make too many choices in that time and you maybe consume some food, you'll dampen that a little bit um, as opposed to, well, I'll have one drink and it's going to be a little while before I get food and then you're sort of, more intoxicated initially and then maybe take a decision, oh, I'm feeling good, I might have another drink. And then all of a sudden you're sort of in this situation where you've consumed more than you would have if you'd eaten at the same time. So it's it's very contextual in terms of how you respond to the given environment. But some of the things you mentioned like drinking, spreading your drink out, drinking at a very, very slow rate, all of these things are good strategies. I also think another thing that you mentioned there in passing was about uh, you might feel a bit of the, you call it the, the malaise, uh, not necessarily a full-on hang, hang, hangover, but uh, and but you don't necessarily know or you can't show physiologically what that does to you. And, and actually, I think that that's a really great point because, uh, I mean, I've certainly done sessions where I've had that sort of malaise feeling. And and sometimes you, you do a perfectly fine session. Like it might, yeah, you, you just can't tell that you, that even if you feel somewhat impacted, the the objective data doesn't show that it had any impact at all on you and and that could be potentially i think there's a similar phenomenon when you do resistance training and or concurrent training so you feel a little bit of uh, muscle soreness from resistance training and you go and do a a run session or a bike session like you feel your legs don't feel like you would ideally want them to feel but it doesn't always uh, necessarily negatively impact your endurance session you might be able to run just as fast or bike just as hard uh, it's just that that feeling is different than you're used to when uh, when you haven't done that resistance training before. So there could be could be an effect of uh, or a, a lack of an effect on the actual performance, even though you feel something going on in your in your head and in your body. Yeah, I mean, I I, I always you know um, I describe fire as a you know a, a, a good servant but a bad master. Alcohol is the same to me. You know, it it's a good servant when you're in control of it. If if you know how much you can tolerate drink-wise. Um, you drink because it's purposeful, because there's an opportunity. Um, you know how much you're drinking and also it's timed around your training. Like If you know that you've got a quality session coming up the next morning and you want to be you know, really driving your performance as opposed to a slower session where you might be looking at metabolic adaptation, um, well, then, you know, you don't want to have that malaise feeling. You want to go into that session feeling confident and, and, and you know, really sort of stressing yourself. So on that occasion, 
you know, not drinking anything the night before is a choice that you make because you're in control. Um, as I said, equally, there might be other sessions that you know are going to be low intensity, they're going to be over a long duration, um, and you've got a, an opportunity to connect with people the night before. You have a drink, two drinks, tops. Yeah, you're prepared to deal with that little bit of malaise knowing that, okay, this is the program, this is a session. I'm happy to, to balance my alcohol intake relative to where I am and what I'm doing by way of my training program. It's when it, it's when it gets driven the other way that's, that's you know, that's, that's when it becomes a concern. Mm, sure yeah that's a great point and and on that note what if you you know that okay like it's a big occasion i don't know somebody's wedding and, and you know that you want to go out and have, have have a number of drinks uh would you would you then advise if this is let's say somebody you're working with uh, would you ad- advise them to plan their training in a certain way on the day of so that they the, the day of the evening that they're going out or and the day after would you would you how would you change things in their training or plan their training accordingly yeah, well, I think um, I think that's really important. If you've got the flexibility and you can train beforehand, then you you would definitely um, do that. Um, the other thing is that you know how many drinks do you need to have a really good night? Um, you might have two or three or four drinks and know that that's going to be potentially an issue the next day. But that's very different to one gram per kilo body weight or one point five kilos per uh, kilograms. Uh, body weight that we were describing from the research studies where you get up to these 7, 10, 12 standard drinks. Remember, once the night has started and you're up and running, if you've got a glass of beer in your hand, people aren't going to tell whether that's your, 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 your third beer or your 12th beer. They might be able to tell from your behaviour, but if you drink slowly then um, and, and, and moderate the, the rate at which you're drinking, you can still very much participate in that social function without it necessarily becoming a complete write-off the next day. So how you moderate yourself in that in that social context um, is is you know is important. Um, one of the things that um, we've seen in this country, for instance, is a large increase in zero alcohol beers, um, and we know, for instance, in young drinkers they're far more likely to drink these products if it's on tap and sold in a glass because it it looks like beer and it tastes like beer and no one can distinguish it as opposed to you drinking a low alcohol beer which is in a can or in a bottle which has got a label on it where people have that perception. So I I think smart drinking and having some strategies put in place is is a really wise thing to do if you're um, serious about your sport. You're not going to perform at your best um, in terms of getting the most out of your training if you're sort of, you know, 10 standard drinks or more on any given night. Now, it might be your best friend's um, 21st or 18th birthday, at which point you want to have a couple of days clear of training to get the best out of yourself from that. But sometimes the timings of these things can be horrible. You know, your major event can be right beside a friend's birthday. It comes back to your priorities, doesn't it? In terms of what absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and these are the tough um, decisions that we have with young athletes in particular, who are learning to develop a relationship with their body and a relationship um, with alcohol, as well as you know, um, maximise their sports performance. 
Yeah. Uh, I am going to give some uh, a little bit of uh, or pressure you a little bit on that question, though. Uh, and what if we were not talking about uh, an elite athlete or aspiring elite athlete, somebody who's more of a happy amateur, uh, a weekend warrior, and uh, and we're not necessarily talking ten drinks of alcohol, but we're talking even four or five standard drinks, which could still have an impact, especially if it's somebody who's a bit lighter. And uh, th- I guess in that situation, and they have control of their training schedule, it's not their main event is, is not until another month or so, uh, then you have the option of, of changing your schedule. So, so if, if you have somebody, they want to go out and have five drinks, five, six drinks, um, yeah, well, certainly, then um, what would you do with the training? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd make sure that I um, did a session in the afternoon before going out so that I was, you know, I was... Um, you know, there wasn't going to be an extended delay between between my sessions. Uh, then I would make sure that I probably had um, a non-alcoholic um, beverage, probably every third beverage, because when you're drinking five, six standard drinks, you will get to the dose of alcohol, which will cause diuresis. So you you will lose a lot of um, a bit more fluid there. So you want to be increasing your fluid intake so you don't find yourself in a in a very dry state the next morning. Um, and then yeah, delay. Um, delay your sessions. I probably would stay out of the pool. I never really liked having a uh, a hangover and, and and being in the pool. Um, but being on the bike is probably the the easiest way to exercise. Turn your legs over if you're not feeling um, uh, fantastic. But again, you need to make sure that you're uh, you know if, if you're at sort of four or five standard drinks, then you can get up and you know provided you've had eight, nine hours sleep, you, you, you'll be fine to ride. But if you've had, you know, 12 standard drinks, um, you can still have residual blood alcohol the next morning. So hopping on a bike, certainly in our country, that's that's still illegal. You can still get um, arrested for um, being being on a bicycle and being over the limit, um, at which point your options are obviously um, stay, staying away from the bike and, and doing something else. But, yeah, mod- moderating your morning session is probably well worth doing because it's not going to be quality. It's just yep. more about just sort of getting you up and clearing your head a little bit. There's no fast way that you can get over a hangover other than to try and moderate the dose of alcohol you give yourself in the first place and maybe uh, to some degree moderate the level of dehydration you experience. Mm, yeah. And you mentioned there earlier on about a body composition uh, and the, the impact of alcohol there. So uh, that's something that I've certainly... Uh, seen anecdotally that uh, the it, it seems to be a common strategy among elite athletes especially that in the last uh, two or three months before a major event uh, quite quite a few athletes completely stop drinking alcohol to when they want to get that final optimization of body composition uh, is that a good strategy would you say or uh, how, how would you advise an athlete to to approach that if they have a certain body composition goal for a key event yeah, I mean, body composition is is always a sensitive topic because for me, you, you can be, you can get to a ideal body composition through strategies which are performance promoting, and then other extreme behaviours which may not necessarily is you know good good behaviours or underpin good behaviours. There's no doubt that um, drinking um, alcohol or having energy coming in from alcohol, um, most other forms of energy that you bring in whilst you're consuming alcohol because the, the body will effectively want to burn that energy first and pretty much put everything else into sort of maximum storage mode if you've got ample energy coming from alcohol. And so if, if it's bringing in a 
even a, a moderate um, contribution of your total energy intake, it's a very easy way to drop your calorie intake um, and to do it quickly. Because as I said, outside of uh, fat, which is about nine calories per gram, and then you've got um, you've got alcohols, the next major energy contributor at about seven calories or 29 kilojoules, and then um, carbohydrate and protein at about 17 um, seven, uh, 16, 17 kilojoules or about four calories. So it, it's got um, almost twice the calorie density that carbohydrate and protein has. And so it's a very quick way of dropping your total calorie intake if you're a regular drinker. Yeah, and uh, certainly a lot smarter than, for example, uh, starting to underfuel your training uh, or anything yeah. like that. And, and as, I, as you've just correctly identified, it's not a source of substrate necessarily that we like to use during exercise. And so um, we don't want to see people underfueling um, and running the risk of, you know, things like relative energy deficiency in sport and the like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I posted on Instagram for some listener questions and, and got a lot. And uh, to be honest, a lot of the questions that I got were around the impact of a, a low amount of alcohol, so one glass of uh, wine or one beer in the evening. So we kind of covered that and, and we have covered most other questions, I believe. But one that came in is uh, around uh, HRV, heart rate variability, uh, so the question is, is the effect of alcohol completely encompassed in the morning HRV score? Uh, well, uh, it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise, the um, the um, nervous system responses to heart rate variability. My understanding is that um, chronic alcohol intake um, has uh, a fairly substantial influence on the parasympathetic um control of heart rate variability at more acute doses, uh, more sympathetic response. Um, but, I mean, the variability itself is, you know, controlled or moderated by lots of lots of other factors as well. Um, I, I guess I, I, my, my concern or my hesitation is my lack of expertise in, in, in monitoring um, heart rate variability in terms of the other factors and how much of an influence alcohol has relative to the other variables that that may you know play key determinants in that in that moderator most yeah. of the work that's been uh, done in this case has been done in chronic alcoholics yeah i, I will refer uh listeners interested to an interview that i did with uh, dr marco altini uh and i'll link to it in the in the show notes where uh they uh investigated hrv data from of tens of thousands of, of people, if I recall correctly, using HRV oh, for wow. training. And, and they yeah. did see a, a very big... Uh, alcohol was definitely one of the f- factors that uh, that had a, the biggest acute impact on HRV. But whether the effect of alcohol is completely encompassed in the morning HRV score, I mean, uh, I, I don't think the, that they answered that question, but it certainly seems to have a big impact on, on, on HRV. Um, so yeah, I'll link to that episode in the show notes. Yeah, uh, well, so well, listeners can go ahead. That, and I'll have a read of it because uh, yeah. it helped me answer the question. Yeah, um, and then what other research areas are you currently involved in? You mentioned having eight PhD students, so so I'm sure there's there's a lot going on. Uh, what are some highlights that you think the listeners might find interesting? Um, well, so, well, your res- uh, your listeners, I think, would be interested in some of our work that we're doing at the moment on sleep disruption and muscle glycogen um, resynthesis. Um, we've got, I've got a PhD student that's got people coming into our lab and we're waking them up um, 
on different occasions and doing muscle biopsies in the night and, and early in the morning and having a look at um, whether sleep disruption influences muscle glycogen resynthesis and to what extent it does. There's not too much work that's been done in that area and we look forward to giving the results of some of those um, those trials probably in the next sort of four to six months. Um, so, but that's um, obviously something that translates directly to, you know, many athletes in many contexts when, you know, sleep is um, such an important um, moderator of how we feel. Um, there is some um, suggestion that, you know, if people wake up in the night um, or they're getting sleep disruption that, you know, brain glucose utilisation increases and, and perhaps that has an influence on how much circulating glucose may uh, be available to, you know, muscles to restore muscle glycogen. And we're doing some of the subcompartmental analysis of that as well, which we'll, we'll, we'll be able to have a look at um, the different components of, of um, muscle glycogen. I, I, I'm not sure if your listeners know too much about the subcompartmentalization of muscle glycogen, but it's found in sort of three different subcomponents in the muscle. And, and so uh, you can have muscle glycogen still within the muscle, but if one of those subcomponents depletes, uh, the muscle can fatigue, even though there's there's still um, muscle glycogen there. Um, uh, um, have you had many people talk about subcompartmental muscle glycogen? I had, I had, I'm just trying, blanking on the name of, uh, oh, Dr. Bob Murray, uh, it was that I interviewed on glycogen. So yeah, we, we did talk about that briefly. It wasn't, uh, it was glycogen in general. That was our muscle glycogen in general. That was our topic. We didn't go too much into that, but we definitely mentioned that. So I'll link to that well, I would, as well. Yeah, I would definitely have a talk or have a read of, um, there's a couple of fellows from the University of Southern Denmark, Niels Ortenblad. Um, is is often um, one of the um, primary um, authors. The other one is Joachim Nielsen. Um, mm-hmm. These two gentlemen have done some amazing work looking at subsarcolemal, intra and intermyofibrillar muscle glycogen, um, and they continue to use um, transmission electron microscopy to be able to look deeply inside the muscle um, to have um, a much more thorough understanding of where muscle glycogen is in the muscle and, and the, as I said, the fact that sometimes we can have muscle glycogen but if we deplete it from the intermyofibrillar space, for instance, the muscle can um, stop its function even though there might be some subcellular or, um, uh, you know, you know uh, other, other regions still have um, glycogen available. So we're able to do some of that work with those guys, which is, which is fascinating. Um, I've got a young um, PhD student who's looking at, I mentioned earlier, low alcohol beverages. Um, in Australia, they've become very, very popular um, in terms of availability. And so we're looking to see whether these beverages might be able to be used to moderate um, binge drinking behaviour in young drinkers. Um, and so um, we have a problem in this country with a culture. Um, it's an intergenerational issue where young drinkers drink to get drunk. Um, they don't develop a, a particularly mature relationship with alcohol until they've had, you know, sometimes 10, 15 years of alcohol abuse as young people. So we're, we're trying to look for uh, ways of maybe minimising the harm that people might do to themselves. Um, and I've got another uh, PhD student who's currently working with Swimming Australia looking at 
um, coaches and education around um, reducing the risk of relative energy deficiency in sport. So rather than looking at how do we define it in a laboratory, more looking at, well, what can we do at the coaching level to support coaches to better support developing athletes in this, in, in this case, it's in swimming, but obviously some of that um, would be very translatable across to, you know, triathlon coaches as well. Yeah, I think that's a massively important topic. I, every, every single week I see um, some example of uh, complete misinformation, misunderstanding around fueling for athletes, generally around um, consciously or subconsciously uh, encouraging underfueling. And uh, yeah, that's definitely uh, something something that needs to be improved in general. So so I think that that's a that's a fantastic topic, and and the other ones uh, as well really really interesting. I think I think what you mentioned there as well with the low or non alcoholic beverages is. is it's also something that me being from Finland, uh, Finland has kind of a similar culture. There's not that much of a drink of beer or a glass of wine in the evening culture. Historically, there it's more about binge drinking in the evening. So, so I think that uh, yeah, we're kind of uh, similar in that sense. The the alcohol culture, although I from what I hear, it has. I, I don't live in Finland anymore since almost five years, but uh, yeah, I think it's changing, and you see more and more young people, especially abstaining from alcohol and 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 definitely uh you see a lot more options in terms of non-alcoholic beverages uh, which is which is great so so it seems like the trajectory is positive yeah yeah and we we really wanted to um capitalize on that to see well what to what extent can we you know can we utilize this greater availability of some of these harm minimization products um and and try and normalize them and understand the way young people think about alcohol yeah, I think it's really interesting what you mentioned before about uh, if a non-alcoholic option exists on tap, that how big an impact that can have. That's something that I hadn't thought about at all. Uh, I more I've thought about well, how many options are they? Are they good quality options? And and that's something that's been greatly improving in the last few years, like really uh, tasty non-alcoholic beers. So uh, yeah. yeah, I. I, I drink a lot of non-alcoholic beers, uh, but yeah, I hadn't thought about, especially from the perspective of somebody going out and having drinks at a bar or something, how, how important it is to also have those options on tap. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I've, I've thought about, and we haven't done any work in this area, but I'd like to um, understand from a responsible service of alcohol perspective, to what extent do, do bar staff um, you know, potentially provide alcohol to people that they probably think they shouldn't be serving on the basis that they don't want to escalate a potentially aggressive scenario. And you wonder if there's a, a way that rather than giving them no alcohol, if you were to say to them, well, here's either a free or a very cheap beer that they can put into a glass from a tap, it's alcohol free whether that would be a viable alternative for them to maintain their responsible service of alcohol, but de-escalate a situation where you where you're turning somebody away from a bar. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting consideration. So um, th th these products offer, offer uh, something in that space that you know maybe we haven't had that's as been as been as broadly acceptable. Mm. Um, you know, in the past. Yep. 
Let's uh, move on to the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, favorite book? Well, there were lots of different books. Um, I remember reading, uh, uh, I think it's Dean Carnesis, um, The Marathon yeah. Man, or The Ultra Marathon Man, I think is the name of his book. I enjoyed reading that because he gave some fantastic descriptions of what it was like to run as the day changed, you know, uh, running through the night, running as the light started to emerge in the morning. And I remember um, reflecting on what that feels like having, you know, not necessarily run for 24 hours, but having done lots of sessions where you get up before the sun is up and, and transitioning as the day wakes up and the quietness of people not being around through to the busyness of people being around. I just thought that really resonated with me. And interestingly, if I recall correctly, uh, isn't he, he was a recovering alcoholic when, or he was basically a, a, an alcoholic when he got into ultra running and that kind of, he, I think, I think that he has said that ultra running saved him from, from alcohol. Yeah, well, that wasn't the reason that I sort of referred to the book, but now that you think of now that I think about it, I, he did. Yeah, he, he was a bit of a drinker, I think, from memory. And the other thing yeah. I just found fascinating about the book is, how few injuries the bloke seemed to get. He just seemed to be able to run and run and run. His body seemed to tolerate it. And I just thought, oh, that's uh, that's very impressive. Yeah. Uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Marrying the right person. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> and who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Uh, the person, probably the, the most inspirational person that I have ever read about is a guy called Chuck Feeney. Um, Chuck Feeney is a billionaire um, from, he's a, an Irish American, and he has, uh, or some decades ago, decided to try and give away all of his money before he died. Uh, he's in his 90s now, I think, Chuck. Um, but if you readers are looking for a book, my favorite book is called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. It's a, a, a biography about Chuck Feeney. Um, and he's a beautiful human being who happened to also be a brilliant businessman. And in the start of the book, it has one of my favourite sayings, um, and I don't think it's necessarily quoted from Chuck, but it's a perfect example of who he is, is that money doesn't make a person, it unmasks them. And in his case, it unmasks a very beautiful person. And so if your readers are looking for a non-sport book, I would encourage them to have a read of The Billionaire Who Wasn't about Chuck Feeney. Yeah. That sounds great. And finally, uh, where can listeners follow you and your work and uh, the work of your lab? Do you have Twitter, ResearchGate, things like that? Um, yeah, I have ResearchGate, but I am on Twitter, um, just at Ben Desbro is the handle. Um, so uh, Desbro is D-E-S-B-R-O-W, and we do um, post uh, different things that sort of I find interesting. It's not all nutrition. Sometimes it's about flowers. Sometimes it's about my dog. Sometimes it's about what ginger beer I'm drinking. Um, but you know, uh, that's one of the great things about nutrition, as I said, is that there's a science to it and there's a, there's a social aspect to it as well. And an enjoyment aspect. We're only on the planet for a few decades. So, uh, you know, use your time wisely. Yeah. Uh, that's a great note to end on Ben. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been really great to chat to you and hope to do it again another time. Thanks so much for having me on. 
I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Ben's Twitter and ResearchGate, as well as related episodes that we mentioned with uh, Dr. Bob Murray and Dr. Marco Altini, and the books mentioned by Ben at the end. Next Monday, I interview Jem Arnold, who many of you may also know as uh, Spare Cycles from his excellent blog. If you do, you know that we're all in for a treat. We will uh, discuss general training and coaching topics, and uh, we'll dive a bit deeper into NIRS and metabolic testing. NIRS, for those not familiar, is near-infrared spectroscopy, and uh, that is a method that has been used uh, for quite a while to measure muscle oxygenation levels, and there are some products out there as well, and uh, Jem will help us go deeper into that topic and understand it better Uh, we are quickly coming towards the end of the 2022 season and many of you may have already started thinking about and started planning for next year if you know that you want to really improve your performance in general or you have some very specific goals that you're working towards then the number one way of making that happen in my opinion is to work with a good coach coaching is not just for pro athletes Uh, in fact if you're time limited then that's perhaps even more of a reason to work with a good coach to make sure that you get the most out of the time that you have for training if you're interested check out the coaching services we have to offer on scientifictriathlon.com and contact us to learn more and discuss your needs and if we can help you uh, with your 2023 goals finally big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid electrolyte and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further use the code tts22 at checkout for 15 percent off your first order of fueling and hydration products and thank you to senate use the senate swim trainer to improve your technique power stamina and your swim training consistency get 20 percent off your order on the swim trainer with the promo code that you can get on senaceinternet.com forward slash TTS and don't forget that it's a risk-free investment if you don't love it after two weeks send it back and you'll get a full refund thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon